Hello, food nerds. This is Nick, and you're listening to Literally Delicious. Welcome back, and thanks for listening to this, our second episode, and the first of our two part look at two dishes from the novel Ernest Hemingway called The One That All Modern American Literature Comes From Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Over the course of the next two episodes, I'll dive into two different meals that Huck enjoys while floating down the Mississippi River, looking closely at historical documents and the original text to make two different preparations of cornbread and a very, very large pot of pork, cabbage, and greens. In today's episode, we're going to get a little corny with it. That is, we're going to make corn pone and corn dodgers. And if you were wondering what those two names mean, you are not alone. I had heard of hoe cakes, johnny cakes, and of course cornbread before, but when I started my research for today's episode, I had absolutely no idea what those two names meant. But what I really got caught up in when researching this episode is how much of a debate there is about what cornbread means and how that definition is very personal. I was also blown away by how different preparations of the same dish, say cornbread, have so many ties to what ingredients were available to which people at the time. Like with the cornbread example, how black southerners tend to use sugar in their cornbread recipes even today because of the history of the industrialization of the corn milling process after Reconstruction. That is, mills switched from sweeter white corn to less sweet yellow corn. You see, yellow corn was cheaper in those days and may have been all that black cooks who were sharecropping and overall had a lot fewer economic opportunities than white people. It could be the only things that they could afford. So they adapted their cornbread recipes to meet their needs. I'll share more about that particular example of the effect of race in this culinary history in today's Last Bite. But I think you'll see throughout our two episodes on Huckleberry Finn just how much race plays into our understanding of what Southern cooking is. And I say Southern with a capital S. And our understanding of the book itself. Well, with that somewhat segue into the novel, let's talk about The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is the book's full title. You'll hear me call call it Huck Finn throughout the rest of the podcast so as to differentiate it from the titular character who I will refer to as Huckleberry. The novel was published in the United States in 1885, and it is a sequel to Twain's hugely successful Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer is Huckleberry's close friend, and he even makes a couple appearances in the novel, but uh, he is not the main character of Huckleberry Finn. Huck Finn takes place in southeastern Missouri, where Twain was from, and what I learned from Uh, looking at some maps for this episode, is that a large part of that area is now called the Mark Twain National Forest. And I was looking at so many maps because I wanted to get a sense of the landmarks that Huckleberry mentions as he floats down the Mississippi River. The background story is a little bit complex, but I'll do my best to be concise so that we can get to the food parts. So basically, Huckleberry came into a lot of money at the end of the last novel, And his father, at the beginning of this novel, wants to gain custody of his son as a way to get that fortune from him. For clarity, the reason Huckleberry's father lost custody in the first place was because he was an alcoholic. To to escape his father, Huckleberry essentially fakes his own death and goes into hiding, actually dressing like a little girl in one scene. 
Meanwhile, Jim, the household slave of Miss Watson, who is Huck's adoptive guardian, hears that Miss Watson is planning to sell him for $800 to a slave trader. So after hearing that, he runs off to meet up with Huckleberry. But because Huckleberry's staged death and Jim's disappearance coincided, many in the town accuse Jim of murdering Huckleberry. So he has to go on the run. So already we can see how slavery and racism are intertwined in the story. But at any rate, Huckleberry and Jim take off on a raft to escape from their respective dilemmas. Many adventures take place as they float down the Mississippi River, but I'll fast forward up to the part where Huckleberry eats the two memorable meals from the novel. At this point of the novel where we will pick up at, Huck and Jim have floated down the Mississippi River toward Cairo, Illinois, the furthest southern point of the free states where they will intersect with the Ohio River toward freedom for Jim. During this voyage, Jim and Huckleberry have a complex relationship, one we can see develop through Huckleberry's eyes, who is a mere child. In one moment, we see Huckleberry acknowledge his fondness for Jim and recognize Jim's humanity, while in another moment, Huckleberry actually contemplates giving Jim up to slave catchers. He actually uh, gets rid of the slave catchers in a somewhat clever way by faking sick. And I think perhaps because we're living during COVID-19, I can relate so much better to moments in literature where characters avoid other characters because they are ill, but that's the absolute farthest I will go in terms of relating to these disgusting slave catchers. But I digress. So having already escaped slave catchers and gotten lost in the fog, they float further down the river until they get separated as a steamboat collides with their craft. Huck swims ashore, and we do not know if he is indeed south of Cairo, but there are a few hints that he is. For one, Huckleberry finds his way to a plantation owned by the Grangerford family. He reports that hundreds of slaves worked on the plantation, and quote, one for each person, which are his exact words. And I think they show just how much Huckleberry is truly a product of the racist language of his day, differentiating the slaves from people. So we can definitely presume that we are south of the free states, but where exactly is a point of conjecture? For me, at least, I think by looking at the books on the Grangerford's kitchen table, we can get some ideas. The author of a book of speeches on the table is Henry Clay, representative of Kentucky at that time, the state lying on the opposite bank of the Mississippi River from Missouri. Well, one of the states, at least. And another author on the table is Dr. John C. Gunn, a Knoxville, Tennessee physician whose works, according to Ben H. McClary in the Tennessee Historical Quarterly, were popular in Ohio, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. I think we could place Huckleberry in Kentucky at this point, which will be important later on as we think through what our novel's second reference to cornbread might have looked like. But about that first meal with cornbread. The first morning that Huckleberry stays with the Grangerfords, their household slave, Betsy, prepares for him cold corn pone, cold corn beef, butter, and buttermilk. And Huckleberry claims, quote, there ain't nothing better that I've come across yet. But as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, this episode will focus on two preparations of cornbread. What is the other, you may ask? Well, shortly after Huckleberry meets the Grangerfords, he finds Jim alive and well, patching up the raft and gathering pots and pans and vittles, as he says, 
to prepare to continue their journey down the Mississippi. Jim's reemergence couldn't be at a more timely point for Huckleberry, who actually gets swallowed up in a feud between the Grangerfords and another rival family and has to flee. So Huckleberry and Jim continue downstream, where they have perhaps the most famous meal cited in the novel. Quote, I never felt easy till the raft was two miles below there and out in the middle of the Mississippi. Then we hung out our single lantern and judged that we was free and safe once more. I hadn't had a bite to eat since yesterday, so Jim, he got out some corn dodgers and buttermilk and pork and cabbage and greens. There ain't nothing in the world so good when it's cooked right. And whilst I eat my supper, we talked and had a good time. So in two meals eaten in a very short period of time in the novel, we see two preparations of cornbread. Both are made by slaves. The first is Betsy and her cold corn pone, and the second is Jim's corn dodgers. For my research on the differences between these two dishes, I've found that regional terminology and the etymology of these food terms make sussing out the differences as murky and muddy as the Mississippi River itself. To start with corn pone, pone is a borrowed word from the Algonquian upon, and it is a term for a corn cake or corn loaf. So that doesn't really narrow it down much. To some, corn pone is a corn cake made without egg or any leavening, really just water and cornmeal and oil or animal fat. But to others, corn pone can be a general term, referring to a cornbread leavened with egg and milk, similar to cornbread as we imagine today. Just to confuse things a little bit more, some parts of Appalachia call corn pone basically any cornbread whatsoever. But Missouri isn't Appalachia, and to further complicate this, the term corn pone has been uh, kind of terribly used to, I guess, as a pejorative term against Southern people uh, to say that they are simple or stupid. And this is actually the first definition of the term that is listed in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So with all of this confusion about what corn pone means, how would anyone be able to make Betsy's cold corn pone? Well, let's start with what we do know for sure, and that is that any milled corn during this time period would have been made with white corn. As culinary historian Michael Twitty explains in an interview with Kathleen Purvis for the Charlotte Observer, corn pone originated with British colonists who adapted their baking to meal ground from white corn. Until the early 20th century, southern cornmeal was made with sweeter white corn, and it was water ground, so no sugar, no sugar excuse me, needed to be added. Molasses may have been poured on top to sweeten, like pancakes and syrup. In the journal Southern Cultures, Bernard Herman describes one preparation of a giant corn pone made by a black food cart owner named Hannah Mary in eastern Delaware. It was just basically cornmeal, molasses, I think hot water, but she baked it in a huge iron skillet, one of Hannah Mary's relatives says. In an article for Virginia Living Magazine by Lisa Antonelli Bacon, what a great name for a food writer, by the way, she verifies the use of the iron skillet at least up until the Civil War period. Bill Savage, a cornmill owner, quoted in Bacon's article states that soldiers made do with cornmeal, water, and grease from bacon or salt pork to make a thick batter, which they fried in a pan over a campfire. Savage adds, you might add milk or eggs or sugar to corn pone, but any more than that and you end up with corn bread versus corn pone. 
So for savage, the line is very unclear. Corn pone can be a hot water cornbread or cornbread with egg and milk, but no other leavening. According to our sources, it seems like the only thing that's for sure is that corn pone is made with white cornmeal and cooked in a pan. Flat or fluffy? It's not an easy question to answer, but if we read the text closely, we can get a sense of materials that definitely were at Betsy's disposal in the kitchen. Because Betsy is an enslaved woman, we know that the story takes place before the Civil War in roughly the 1830s or 1840s. Though baking powder is a staple of kitchens today, the formula for baking powder wasn't patented until 1856. Before then, starting in the 1830s at least, bakers relied on bicarbonate of soda, or baking soda, and sour milk to make bread rise quickly through carbon dioxide. But the results were often inconsistent because of the varying levels of acidity in the spoiled milk. According to Ben Panko, again, another really great food writer name there, for the Smithsonian Magazine, baking soda was not introduced commercially until 1846. So it's likely not the case that the corn pone were leavened with baking powder or baking soda, as it would be anachronistic to suggest that within the setting of our story, these chemicals would have been invented yet or available to Betsy in western Kentucky or eastern Missouri, wherever we are right now. But with what we do know, Betsy definitely had to, her, at her disposal was butter and buttermilk. And it wouldn't be very far-fetched to suggest that buttermilk and butter made it into the corn pone and were also served on the side of it. The cold corn pone, I conclude, were flat corn cakes and not the fluffy cornbread that we get at southern restaurants today or at barbecue restaurants, wherever. That's how I will make mine, and I will do so in an iron skillet, as suggested in the many recipes I found in my research. But what about a corn dodger? How is that any different from corn pone? Well, it's tough to say, since there's really no consensus on what corn dodger means. Shape seems like an important differentiator here, however. Corn dodgers are like hush puppies that we can imagine eating today. And some of my personal favorites, by the way, are at cookout. But I digress. By hush puppies, I mean small biscuits made of cornmeal formed into an oval or egg shape. It's kind of hard to describe the shape, but I think you know what I mean. They were made by adding some sort of rendered animal fat and hot water to cornmeal and salt to form a stiff batter. But from there, there's even more debate on how to actually cook a corn dodger. According to Bacon, the writer of the Virginia Living article that is, onions are added to corn dodgers to give them a savory element. Some say that you fry them, while others say that they should be baked until hard. Interestingly, I found this recipe for boiled corn dodgers. Uh, It's called a southern specialty, and I found this in the Knoxville News Sentinel. So these cornmeal dumplings are boiled in the pot liquor for greens or cabbage, and they are served inside of the corn, uh, excuse me, inside of the pot liquor. So just kind of like a, a dumpling would be floating around in a chicken and dumpling soup, for example. The cornmeal batter is dropped into the greens to cook, Some in Kentucky and other parts of the South specifically call these boiled dumplings corn dodgers. I think this is a very interesting recipe, but ultimately the corn dodgers were not boiled dumplings for reasons that I will talk about in just a moment. However you imagine them, the one thing that 
seems clear to me is that these cornmeal things that Jim made were definitely different than the corn pone made by Betsy for the Grangerford family. If they weren't any different, then why would Huck recognize them as two different things and call them as such? But on top of that, I think that they are different because of what sorts of ingredients Jim actually could get by trading rations with other slaves without access to a kitchen like Betsy had. He makes, according to Huckleberry, corn dodgers, buttermilk, pork cabbage greens. And I'll talk more about the greens in our next episode, but according to the research on slave rations done by Eisnack and Covey, which you can find linked in the description for this episode, the pork is likely salt pork made from leftover cuts of pork and preserved, and salt, of course, to last a very long time on ships and in the frontier country. And you may remember us using salt pork in our first episode on chowder from Moby Dick. So a meager ration of meat was provided by the slave owner to their slaves, along with rations of some inexpensive grain and molasses or sugar, whichever was cheapest. There is some dairy here in the form of buttermilk, but no mention of butter and eggs. Definitely not. So how might Jim have made the corn dodgers? Well, because of the syntax of the sentence, we can rule out that the corn dodgers were boiled with the greens, since it reads, corn dodgers and buttermilk and pork and cabbage and greens. Two separate dishes. If they were boiled with the pork, cabbage, and greens, there would be no point fishing them out to serve them on the side. It would be very, very slippery, right? So that's ruled out. These corn dodgers were not boiled. Could they have been made with the rendered pork fat? Good idea, but I think that the salt pork would have been boiled with the greens and cabbage so that its fat, which was rendered beforehand maybe, was not going to end up in the corn dodger batter. I don't even think that the buttermilk was used in the corn dodgers for almost all corn dodger recipes that I've found are a hot water recipe. So a mixture of cornmeal, pork fat, salt, and boiling water. Where could Jim get a mixture of pork fat, salt, and boiling water to put into his corn dodgers? Well, from the pot of greens, of course. I think that I came to this conclusion first by reading Lana Stewart's recipe for corn dodgers, and I'm so sorry if your name is Lena, but I'll try my best. Lana Stewart's recipe for corn dodgers, which I will link in the show's description. Well, with that, I think it's time to head into the kitchen and make some corn dodgers. For this preparation, I'm going to try something a little bit different and try to cook the corn dodgers in a way that simulates the campfire cooking that Jim might have used during his uh, stay on the Mississippi River. So, as always, you can follow along by going to Instagram at literallydelishpod, and let's go into it. Why just read it when you can eat it? Let's go. Hello, food fans. Welcome back to the kitchen, where today we are making two versions of cornbread from Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. We're going to make Betsy's corn pone and Jim's corn dodgers, okay? Each of these recipes call for a ground white cornmeal without any leavening, okay? It's uh, kind of difficult to find the cornmeal in this preparation because a lot of white cornmeals have the leavening already added into them to make 
cornbread. Sometimes they're even just marketed as a cornbread mix. Um, so the cornmeal that I'm using today, let me get it for you. I ordered this on the internet. It is bolted white cornmeal made by Weisenbergers of Kentucky. Milled from non-GMO white corn, water ground, no preservatives or chemicals used, it says. So um, this is pretty much as close to what cornmeal would have looked like in Missouri in the mid-19th century, okay? And that's why we're gonna use it. Um, this is sweeter because the corn gets to age a bit longer, okay? So before it goes into the mill, it ages longer, it gains more sugar, and for that reason, the white cornmeal will taste sweeter than the yellow cornmeal that you might usually use in a cornbread recipe, okay? As I talked about in the earlier part of this episode, this corn pone is not leavened. It's not fluffy like cornbread that we might think of today. Rather, it's going to be similar to a flat cake, okay? So here is how we're going to make it. I've got in a fairly large bowl one cup of white cornmeal that I've mixed together really well with about a half teaspoon of salt and two tablespoons of butter. You don't even need to melt the butter because to this I'm going to add a third a cup plus a tablespoon of water that I've just boiled on my kettle. And if you're working with measuring cup that doesn't have a third cup mark like mine is right now, just try your best. We want this batter to be thick, okay? So definitely don't want to over add because we're also going to add the additional buttermilk on top. So you just hear me pouring water out of my measuring cup. I want to get one third cup. Ooh, it looks good. And like a splash more as the extra tablespoon. Okay, get a stirring device. Start to combine. Meanwhile, in a cast iron skillet, place two tablespoons of butter. Smack dab in the middle and put that cast iron into your oven, which has been preheated to 375. A middle rack here, please. Okay, now food fans, I want to give you a huge, huge task. Okay, would you please, please, please say out loud wherever you are right now, Nick, do not touch the handle of the cast iron as it comes out of the oven. Okay? Thank you. Your, your work is very much appreciated, food nerds. Okay, so I'm mixing up cornbread batter. It's gonna be stiff, very stiff. Make sure that butter gets melted into there. To smell it, 
It smells like, I don't know, like, not like cornbread usually smells. Definitely like corn, but also like mashed potatoes in a way. I don't know what that's all about, but that looks good right now. To this, we are going to add just a little bit more moisture by way of a quarter cup of buttermilk. nice and thick. Give it a shake. That's probably a little bit too thick for what we want when some of the milk solids are at the top. Okay. You're going to want to add less than you think you might need because you don't want this batter to be too wet. We're gonna form these into little cakes. So, like a Play-Doh consistency maybe. Checking on my butter, don't want it to burn in there. Did you say it, food, food nerds? I've got my oven mitt on right now. Thank you, thank you for reminding me. Okay, just move the butter around a little bit, spreading it about. No need to overmix this, just so that all the cornmeal looks like it's been hydrated. Now I'm gonna let that sit for a few minutes so that the cornmeal does just that. It gets hydrated and we have moist uh, corn pone and not dry corn pone. Right, doesn't that sound a lot better? You're taking my cast iron out of the oven? Okay, the reason for doing this is that you want these corn cakes, which you're about to form with your hands, to hit that pan and sizzle a bit, okay? So, we're going to make with this batter here six Okay, six or so. I always tend to make my baked goods too big. So I'm gonna take about, I don't know, say a quarter cup. If you wanted to be exact with it, I guess you could get like a muffin scoop. I'm just patting it down in my hand. Kind of feels like when you're playing with mud as a kid. Okay, so it's in the palm of my hand. It fills up the palm of my hand. I think that looks about right. I'm going to drop it into the butter. Once you get it into the buttered pan, kind of smush it down again and make your other five, hopefully, uh, corn pone, maybe less. So with each of these, I've been making them about like a half an inch thickness and in the width of my palm. Which may be too big, food nerds, but we're gonna go big or go home today. Okay, 
I'm using a 10 inch cast iron and I've successfully made four. <laughs> four from that amount of batter. The bubbling that you just heard is from a pot of pork, cabbage, and greens, which, as you know, because you've listened to the first half of this episode, right? Go back if you haven't. This will not make any sense to you. I'm making that, and I'm going to be adding it to my corn dodgers. Okay. Corn poner in the pan. I'm going to wipe my hands off here. Okay, and using my oven mitt, put the cast iron back into the oven where these corn pone will bake for 30 minutes. Godspeed. All right, moving now from the corn pone to Jim's corn dodgers. Okay, coming right back and we're gonna make some corn dodgers. Okay, food nerds, it's been about 20 minutes for the greens and cabbage and pork to simmer down. And they've created in the Dutch oven a really nice broth. And I've got my girlfriend here. Would you like to be named? Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't know. And this is Gab. Gab, my <laughs> girlfriend. I know I didn't name her in my last episode because I wasn't sure she wanted to be named. Privacy is important. Yes, we respect your privacy, food nerds. Um, but I got Gab here to taste the pot liquor. And she's a little bit nervous. But it's all gonna be okay. <laughs> so, I got a ladle and a shot glass because... Things that just make sense. Duh. I'm gonna scoop a little bit of the pot liquor. At this point in time, you would add the pot liquor to your corn dodgers. Okay, this is gonna be hot, by the way, again. So don't like actually Take it like a shot. <laughs> you know me and shots. <laughs> this is a child-friendly program. <laughs> Want to smell it first? I think yeah. it smells great. I'm a little intimidated. I'll take it first. Okay. So, food nerds, just to be clear, we're not eating any raw pork. The pork has already been boiling, simmering for 20 minutes, and I browned it first. Also, Gab, so that you know. <laughs> there is pork in this. Okay. Here goes. Wow. In a word, invigorating. Seriously. <laughs> I'll put some hair on your chest, Gab. Here, you go. It's so good. I'm really scared. It's try. similar to like... Yeah, tell me um, what it's like. The food nerds want to know. I'm trying to tell them. <laughs> I think when the collard green cooks down, it's like a cross between like a broccoli flavor and a spinach flavor, but then it also has the pork going for it. Not bad. Really? <laughs> it's not my favorite thing in the world, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here first, new food nerds. <laughs> I'm gonna finish this little shot. 
of Cheers. hot liquor, which contains no alcohol. Okay. Um, I guess. Pot. Yeah. I guess you could, as some people do, the big Southern tradition to add to some add some whiskey, whiskey or bourbon. Yeah. To rum. Maybe. Fireball. Oh no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> so, I will turn a blind eye. You can stay as true to the text as you want to, food nerds. I will be none the wiser. But uh, cheers to your pot liquor. All right, food nerds, we are back here to make some corn dodgers. I've combined in a bowl my white cornmeal, salt, pepper, and about a half of a large but finely diced yellow onion. To this, I am going to add about three quarter cups of the pot liquor from the pork, cabbage, and greens that I'm going to make in our next episode. So if you want the recipe for that, you have to stay tuned for next week, okay? So I'm taking a ladle and gathering some of this lovely pot liquor from the bottom of the pot, and adding it straight over to my cornbread. Start with a three quarters of a cup, roughly. You may need a little bit more to make a batter come together. A stirring utensil is helpful for this. Okay. So the inclusion of the diced onions in the corn dodger is one of the things that definitely makes this different from corn pone. Adding a little bit more pot liquor. You don't want to get any of the cabbage and greens if you can avoid it. Okay. And this is going to make a really stiff batter, way, way stiffer, if that makes sense, than your corn pone. So mix to wet the corn, the cornmeal, okay, kind of like the consistency of wet sand for this one, okay, not the kind of like playing with mud consistency of the corn pone. Let me see if I can at this point take it and form it into a little ball in my hand. If I can, then I'm done. If not, I'm going to add a little bit more pot liquor. Boom. This entire process, minus making the cabbage and greens or whatever kind of soup preparation, I guess. It takes about, well, say five minutes. Nice and quick. And you're just going to go crazy for the way that I'm going to cook these. Okay, let me try the ball method here. Taking the, the meal into my hand and pressing it together between my palms to form like an oblong oval shape. It should stay together. So if you throw it back down into the bowl and it breaks apart, add just a little bit more pot liquor still.
you don't want to make it too wet because then it will kind of just become a little bit too mushy and steamy. This is looking perfect here. Okay, here's what we're going to do now to cook these corn dodgers. And I devised this method to try to mimic, recreate the campfire cooking that Jim would have been doing here. So we're gonna place our lid back on our corn, cabbage, and greens. making sure that our oven has been preheated to 400. I'm using some canola oil cooking spray. I'm gonna spray the outside of my Dutch oven. If you're using a gas burner, you wanna make sure that you turn that off before you do that. You don't want a, a flamethrower on your hands. Okay, and then I'm going to Move my Dutch oven a little bit closer here. Form my corn dodgers into those little oblong shaped balls and place them right on the lid of the Dutch oven. You heard it right. Right on top of the lid of the Dutch oven. I'm using, I don't know, say like a quarter cup of mix in each one. You don't want to make them too big here. The feeling in your hands should be like you're playing with wet sand. You should make about six corn dodgers out of this recipe. I made a very thick boy for that one there. I'm gonna break him up, add him to a different one. This is very fun. If you like recipes that involve Playing with your food, drinking pot liquor, which again doesn't take, contain any alcohol, but it's called that in the South. Okay. Boom. Very pretty. I'll make sure I get a picture of this for you food nerds uh, so that you can see on our Instagram at literally delish pod what this is going to look like. All right. I've got my rack set pretty low in my oven so that my Dutch oven fits inside. I'm going to bake these for about 20 minutes and dry them out nicely, uh, give or take some time. You definitely wanna cook these through because the corn dodger is going to be a little drier and crisper, like a biscuit and less like a, like a corn pancake, like our corn pone, okay? so. I'm going to carefully now, because remember, your Dutch oven is full of lovely cabbage and greens. Very carefully here, move the Dutch oven into my oven. Okay. Kind of want to move it around so that a handle is facing the outside whenever I retrieve this. Okay, set your timer for 20. And get ready to enjoy some Corn Dodgers from Huckleberry Finn. I'll talk to you then.
Okay, food nerds, I got my oven mitt on, and I'm going to take my cast iron out of the oven, along with the corn pone, and, ooh, these look lovely or what? They smell so good, too. The bottoms will be nice and browned. The tops, uh, they won't be browned. You, of course, can broil these if you'd like. What I'm going to do is actually take a spatula Flip them up and over in the pan. Give them a little bit of a brown on the other side. They're completely cooked at this point, so this step is 100% optional. This one doesn't want to come up. There it is. And so you could throw this back in the oven for about two minutes. Let that other side brown. Meanwhile, I just put in my corn dodgers and they are looking so very cool. They still need about 10 more minutes to dry up, give or take. Whenever you touch the corn dodger, it should feel dry, okay? And that is why it's so important when you're making your original batter not to over soak them because you don't want moisture leaking out, melting your corn dodgers and making a huge mess in your oven. I'm looking out for you, food nerds. All right, a couple minutes and we're going to take out our corn pone. And of course, we gotta let them cool. It's cold corn pone, okay? So meet you back then. Okay. Taking the corn pone out of the oven, let them cool, and I'm just serving with a little bit of butter, as it says, was served in the text at the Grangerford house. And I've also added uh, a little bit of molasses to the top for some added sweetness, as I know that this was something traditional in the time period. So let's give one of these a taste. Food nerds, that's not like any other cornbread I've ever tasted, and in a really good way. It's like somewhat savory, maybe because we added some salt to it, and the molasses, which I used blackstrap molasses, it just adds a little subtle sweetness. Hmm. Make this. This is a great breakfast, food nerds. We'll be right back with our corn dodgers. Okay, food nerds, I just took my Dutch oven with my greens, pork, cabbage out of my actual oven at 400 degrees. As you remember, we put the corn dodgers on top and I'm going to once again share that image on Instagram with you to see what that looked like. And now we get a chance to try our corn dodgers here. So I waited until uh, after the 20 minutes in the oven, they felt nice and dry on the outside. But when you break them open, they should still be nice and moist and steamy like these are. I'm going to get, just for 
historical accuracy purposes here, a glass of buttermilk, which I've never tried straight from the bottle before, and I will do so for the very first time on microphone. Not camera, but microphone. Okay, so I think, hmm, I think I'll try the buttermilk first and then chase it with the corn dodger. Here we go. This is my first sip of buttermilk ever. Oh, no. No. It tastes like Greek yogurt, which I have eaten straight and I don't really like. Actually, food nerds, don't at me. But I'm not a huge Greek yogurt fan. I mean, buttermilk is similar, similar because it's like a cultured dairy. So, um, it's not my thing. It's also very thick. Anyway, here's a corn dodger. Mmm. A little bite from the onion. It's so good. Wow. It's like super savory. And that pot liquor has given it so much like porky and a little bit of flavor from the collard greens, but that just perfect level of salt. They're moist on the inside, crisp on the outside, and literally delish. All right. Well, food nerds, this has been a great episode. I hope that you'll join us again next time as we taste these wonderful pork, greens, and cabbages that we have right here. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us for our episode of Literally Delicious. If you have a dish or drink from literature that you would like to see me dive into, send it to me by email to literallydelishpod at gmail.com. Just make sure you send some info about the book as well, such as the author, because that is super helpful to me finding books that I haven't read before. And since you're still here, you might as well stay for some dessert. Here is today's last bite. In our last bite for today, I wanted to follow up on a debate about cornbread in the South, which I mentioned earlier. As with a lot of staple foods and different cuisines, there are a bunch of people who insist that there is a quote-unquote right way or wrong way to do things. My bias about debates like these is that it is what always you should do is what tastes best for you. So everybody should just do what they like. But the controversy I'm speaking of in particular is about whether sugar belongs in cornbread. And this divide is complex, but often white Southerners, and especially those of the older generations, insist that sugar shouldn't go into cornbread, or if it does, it should be called corn cake. While black Southerners may be uh, more often uh, adding sugar to their cornbread batter. But why this divide between white and black Southerners? According to food historian Michael Twitty, who I referenced earlier, it can be explained by the industrialization of corn milling in the early 20th century. According to Twitty, in an interview with Kathleen Purvis, which I cited already, the steel roller mills used yellow corn that was harvested before it was ripe, so it had less sugar. You had to add a little flour to help it rise and sugar to add flavor. Yellow cornmeal was cheap, and it may have been all that black cooks could afford at the time, so they adapted their cornbread recipes to meet their needs. Adding sugar in cornbread recipes became commonplace and eventually cemented as part of soul food cooking, 
as Southerners moved north in the Great Migration. Meanwhile, using white cornmeal continued to be the old-fashioned way, so to speak, of preparing cornbreads, and these recipes uh, added no sugar to their batter to bring out the corn flavor. Of course, white cornmeal is mass-produced today, and so this debate is simply a matter of taste and not a matter of economics, but I think that this historical anecdote speaks to how, and again, I'm speaking directly to staple foods here, so many of our foods have a history of people approximating and replicating and making do with what one has, and not just making do, but actually making it one's own and making it taste really, really good. I think another, I guess, ironic thing about this debate is, I guess, how much of Southern cuisine is actually slave food in its origin, enjoyed by, uh, cooked by slaves and enjoyed by other slaves and for plantation owners, but especially made popular in cookbooks written at the time around Mark Twain's time uh, by white people. And I'm, I'm not saying here that poor white people in the South and on the frontier, in the Midwest, wherever, didn't make cornbread. That's not true. But my point is that so much food history in the United States needs to acknowledge slavery and the food made by slaves as being integral to every American's gastronomical history. And this is a point that I'll come back to in our next episode of Literally Delicious, where I go into part two of Huckleberry Finn, and I make greens, cabbage, and pork. I hope you'll join me then. But until then, stay hungry, food nerds. Mm-hmm.